Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. Well, as we have uh, talked about and read and sung, today we are celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. And the resurrection is the high point in the Christian story. It's the center of everything that we believe. If the Christian account of the world is to be taken seriously, the resurrection is actually the most important thing that has ever happened in the history of the world, stretching on uh, into eternity. And yet, as important and as crucial as the resurrection is to Christian belief, uh, nowhere in the New Testament is the resurrection itself described. We don't get a, a glimpse behind the stone to see what happened when Jesus rose from the dead. It's almost like the gospel writers themselves think that that would be too much, that that would be like staring into the sun. We, we wouldn't be able to take it in. So instead, the, what they describe is the first appearances of Jesus after his resurrection to different people. First to Mary and to some women who came uh, to tend to his body at dawn. Later to some disciples on their way to a city called Emmaus. And then in the story that we're going to read today from Luke chapter 24, Jesus appears to his disciples uh, as they are in the midst of a locked room. Scared about their own future and what's going to happen to them, Jesus appears. And so that's the story that we are going to, uh, to look at this morning. If you are willing and able, would you stand for the reading of God's Word? Our reading today is Luke 24, 36 through 53. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and feet that is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I stood was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with the power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true and given to us in love. Thanks so much. You can be seated. Let's bow your heads and pray. 
Lord, as we come to your word, we ask that you would speak to us. We believe that this is your word, that you still speak, that somehow, just as truly as you spoke to the, your disciples on that day, that you still speak uh, to us through your word. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us uh, eyes to see and ears to hear your voice. Lord, that you would speak uh, to us and stir faith in us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. How do you prove uh, that you really are who you say you are? How do you prove it uh, to someone? You know, uh, we spend, I spend a ton of my time, uh, it seems, increasingly proving that I really am who I say that I am to electronic devices. Right? Our phones, you have to have a thumbprint or a face scan for it to open. I don't know how many hours of my day I spend staring at a computer screen and trying to remember a password uh, that I came up with some months ago. Right? Oh, how do I pay my cable bill? What is it? You know, is it three letters and a number non-sequential with three and signs? How do, I, how do I remember so I can prove who I am? We have to solve puzzles to convince computers that we're not robots. Um, We spend time doing that, all to prove that we really are who we say that we are. Jesus, uh, in this this story that we just read, is in a place where he is trying to prove that he is who he says that he is, that he really is Jesus to his disciples. And of all of the people who have ever lived, Jesus may have had his identity questioned more than anyone else that's ever walked the face of the earth. Just in what's recorded in the Bible, we hear that if he was really a rabbi, he would know that he has to wash his hands ceremonially before he eats. If he was really a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is that he was spending time with, that she was a prostitute, and he would want nothing to do with her. If he was really the Messiah, he would not come from Nazareth, a nowhere town in the middle of nowhere. Even while he's on the cross dying, he was doubted. As they said to him, if he really is the Son of God, Save yourself. If you really are who you claim to be, save yourself. And now here he is, his resurrected glory, you know, straight from the tomb, appearing before his disciples, and we're told that not even they, these 12 men who knew him so very, very well, who walked with him, who did life with him, that they didn't believe that it was really him. We get this great question here from Jesus. In verse 38, why do doubts arise in your hearts? Why do you doubt? Why do these doubts rise up in your hearts? They doubted who he was, and I think still today, Jesus remains the most doubted figure uh, in world history. Even in our own hearts, even in my own heart, there's days where I wake up and I'm plagued with doubts. Whereas Jesus says here, doubts rise in your heart, and you wonder, is it all really true? Is it really, it seems almost too good to be true, too outlandish to be true, that in Jesus, a human being rose from the dead, and in him, death is defeated, a new world is dawned, and everything broken is being remade. So let's let's seek to answer this question that Jesus asks. Why do doubts rise up in our hearts? I want to look at just three reasons that we doubt uh, from this text. The first is, right before he asks why they doubt, he says, why are you troubled? Right? For some of us, the troubles of life in this world make faith seem almost impossible. 
Right? Jesus, he, he, when he enters into this room, he says to his disciples, peace. Peace, which is, is the Hebrew shalom. Shalom, a greeting, meaning uh, peace and well-being. Would everything with you be whole and happy and content and at peace? And yet, in spite of that blessing of peace, we know our lives to be troubled. Think of the troubles that these disciples had been through just in the last three days. Right, This one that they had left everything, left their homes and their families and their businesses to follow, believing that he was the Messiah. He had been abandoned, judged, crucified. And they likely thought that the same fate would await them. They had seemingly lost everything. That's why they were troubled. But why are we troubled? Why are you troubled? What suffering is there in your life that makes it hard for you to believe that there really is a good God ruling over things? That there really is good news that can be trusted. Is it the losses that you've suffered? Is it the loved ones that you've lost, the betrayals that you've felt, the illnesses that you've endured? In a broken world, we all carry sorrow. We've all known troubles. For all of us, those troubles can become a barrier to belief. A barrier to believing that there is a good and loving and powerful God over all things. And yet I love what this passage offers us because this passage offers us a faith that can make sense of the suffering of this life, a faith that doesn't require us to ignore it, to slap on a smiley face in our Easter best and pretend that everything's just fine, uh, that we haven't suffered and that bad things aren't true. Because look, how does Jesus prove his identity to them? It says he shows them his hands and his feet. He shows them, even in his resurrected state, having defeated death, that his hands are still scarred and his feet still bear the marks of the nails that were driven through them a few days ago. Even God bears the scars of a broken world. Even Jesus, the one that, as we're going to see, rules over all things, took onto himself our scars, the sadness and sorrow and brokenness of this world. Only Christianity offers us a scarred God who doesn't stand at a distance from the brokenness and suffering of this world and say, I hope you figure it out, but enters right into it with us. So much that he took our sorrow, messes of our own making, onto himself, and he still bears the scars of the cost of love. So one reason that we doubt is because of the reality of our troubles. Another reason, I think, is because we think we know how the world works, right? We are all sophisticated modern people, right? We've all taken and paid at least somewhat attention in our science classes over the years. We know how the world works. We know how the natural laws that govern the universe operate. We know how a biological life all moves from life to death, and then that's the end. We think we are too smart for a belief like this, that somebody living and in the flesh rose from the dead. We know how the world works, and that's not it. This is something that ancient naive people might have believed, but now we believe that we know better. A more superstitious age uh, might own these beliefs. And yet, to say that uh, overlooks the fact that Jesus' original hearers, 
his disciples, and especially the Greco-Roman world into which the, the first Christians went, also assumed that they knew how the world worked. And they also would have believed that this was not it. Right? The leading philosophers of the Greco-Roman world, right? Epicurus, the leader of the Epicureans, they believed that when somebody died, that was just it. Their saying was, I wasn't, and then I was, and I won't be again. Right? That this life in the flesh is all that there is. The Stoics, who are the other leading philosophers, they believed that you did have some type of life after death, but it wasn't really you. You didn't continue on in a personal way. You just kind of bled into the rest of the universe. The common folk uh, who didn't know which philosophy uh, they adopted, they believed in a kind of a shadowy underworld, where when you died, you went and you continued to exist, but we weren't really sure if it was a good thing or not. The Jews themselves were divided on the issue. Some thought that God would resurrect the dead in the end. Others didn't believe that. And so when Jesus rose from the dead and appeared before them and was very concerned to communicate his physicality, right? That's what's going on here when he says, see my hands and my feet and touch me. You notice where he says, do you have anything to eat? Right? I'll eat a meal in front of you. Ghosts don't do this. Right? Warm, warm spiritual feelings don't eat fish in front of you. Your nostalgia for what was can't do this, but I'm here to show that I'm a real person doing what you never thought anyone could ever do. And so what we see happening uh, in the first decades of the Christian church is a group of people who believed they knew how the world worked, coming to judge the way the world works by the resurrection instead of the other way around. Coming to say, if Jesus really rose from the dead, then I think everything I thought I knew about this world was wrong. I didn't think somebody could rise from the dead, but apparently I was mistaken. I, didn't, I thought death was all that there was, but I guess that I was wrong. One of the places that we see that is if you look towards the end of your passage in verse 52, it says, and they worshipped him. These were, by this time, 11 men. Maybe some of the others. Jesus had a larger group of men and women who followed him as disciples. But every one of these people was an Israelite. That is, they were a follower of one of the most fiercely monotheistic religions on earth. A group that knew, if they knew anything that united them, was there is no God but Yahweh. There is no one else who's worthy of worship, no one else who's worthy of, of, of bowing down before. And so when it says that they worshipped him, it shows that they have, he has turned their world upside down. That this man must be God, and this God must be man in the person of Jesus. Friends, this is what the resurrection is about. It's not that Jesus rose spiritually. It's not that his disciples remembered and were inspired by what he had done and had said. It's that Jesus is God and man in the body comes back to life. Right, what we celebrated uh, at Christmas, God joining himself to humanity in the incarnation. That thing that, uh, that theologians call the hypostatic union, the joining together of God's nature and man's nature, comes to us in Bethlehem. And God and man stay joined together through death, hell, and resurrection. That when Jesus rises, he rises as a man. If Christmas is about God coming to dwell with us, the resurrection and ascension is about humanity going to dwell with God. 
overcoming sin and death, to be joined to God forever. And if that's the case, we have to rework everything we think we know about the way the world is. And then finally, the reason that many of us doubt is that quite honestly, it just seems too good to be true. It seems naive to believe it. It seems like wishful thinking. I love, absolutely love, this description in verse 41. After Jesus has showed him his hands and his feet, look at how the author, Luke, describes their reaction. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling. I love that phrase. They disbelieved for joy. It's this strange phrase that seems halfway between faith and unbelief. Right? They disbelieve. They don't believe yet. And yet already they're starting to feel joy. Already it's like that little, maybe it's true. Maybe he really has risen from the dead, but I still can't quite let myself believe it. It reminds me of a story in the book of Genesis when God gives his promise to to Abraham. He appears to Abraham and Sarah, both were told well on in years and well past the age of childbearing. And he says to them, he says to Abraham and to Sarah, you are going to have many children. You are going to be the father and the mother of many nations. And Sarah, listening in in the background, is said to have laughed. And then the angel who gives the message says, did you laugh? And she goes, no, I didn't laugh. And he goes, no, you laughed. I heard you laugh. (laughs) And it's this strange joy, disbelief, half, half belief, all mixed up together. And yet joy beginning to win out. I love this passage because I think for so many of us, we believe that joy and faith cannot exist together. I'm sorry, that joy, I'm sorry, that faith and unbelief can't exist together. That if we wrestle with doubts, we must not believe. If all of our questions aren't answered, if it's not an airtight system, then we can't really believe. And so then we experience the presence of doubt. Maybe this is all too good to be true. Maybe it didn't really happen. We interpret that as despair, as we can't really believe. And yet what we see here and what we see throughout the Bible is that doubt is always somewhere present in the midst of faith, right? In many ways, the life of faith is a life of walking with God in our doubts, bringing those doubts to God instead of taking our doubts and believing that means we have to run away from God, right? I'm reminded of the man who came to Jesus, asking him to heal his child, and what did he say? He said, I believe, help my unbelief. Right? I recognize that my heart is this, this swirl of belief and unbelief. And I want to believe. I want the joy to swallow up the doubt. I want the faith to swallow up the uncertainty. But in the meantime, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Speak to those parts of my heart that have trouble believing. This is why uh, I believe C.S. Lewis, uh, in his great memoir of his own conversion, titled the book, Surprised by Joy. Surprised by Joy. That oftentimes the experience of faith doesn't look like having wrestled through all of our doubts, having answers to every conceivable question that we might have, but like a tidal wave that hits us, we get surprised by something. Surprised by something that happened, the resurrection. Surprised by the joy that we experience within that. And we go, Jesus, I'm not sure I have it all figured out but I believe, help my unbelief. 
So what would it mean for us if the joy really did overcome the doubt? What would it mean for us if Jesus really was who he says he was? If he really is who he says he is? What does that change for us? What would that do in our lives? First, it would mean that there is a new king. There is a new king of the entire universe. Jesus, after the resurrection, it's interesting, takes to calling him, speaking of himself in the third person. Uh, he refers to himself as the Messiah. Says that he opened up the prophets and the Psalms, opening their minds to understand the scriptures, and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. That word Christ is Messiah, which means the world's true king, the king that all of Israel was waiting on. That if Jesus is really risen from the dead, then he is the king of the entire world. That he has an absolute claim of authority over every man, woman, and child on earth. That he is the king. The resurrection changes absolutely everything. John Guest uh, was a British minister uh, who moved to the U.S. to serve as a pastor in the 1970s. He was pastoring up in New England, and he went to visit a Revolutionary War Museum in Philadelphia. Uh, and there, they had an old tavern sign that hung uh, in a Revolutionary War era tavern in Philadelphia. And that sign said this, we serve no sovereign here. We serve no sovereign here. This struck uh, Reverend Guest as a peculiarly American statement, right? That we are those people who do not bow the knee. We don't bow to any king or queen. We have no sovereign here. And he knew in that moment, whereas most of his ministry had been in England and in Europe, places where they had gone now to democracy, but where they did have some lingering attachment to the idea of sovereignty, to the idea of kings. And he said he knew uh, that here in America, where democracy had gone from simply being, uh, was more than just a political system but was this supreme importance that we place on individual choice and self-determination and freedom, that it was going to be very, very difficult to convince Americans, like us, that, at the center, that the central fact of the world is that there is a king, that we are not our own kings and queens, but that we have to choose to bow, to kneel to one who is the real king. C.S. Lewis wrote a great little article years ago called Equality. And in this, he, he did say that he is for democracy. He says he's for democracy because he realizes that human beings are sinful. And democracy does the best job of distributing the authority to a bunch of sinners instead of allowing one sinner to gain all the authority. <laughs> and so he said he was for democracy, but listen to this. He said, democracy is useful uh, as a medicine, not as food. That it's a medicine, it's not food. Because of the brokenness of humanity, it's the best system there is. But it's not, in a spiritual sense, in an eternal sense, what we ultimately long for, what we are made for. Because as Lewis says it, the human nature is such that it will find a king. If you don't serve God, you will serve other lesser things. You'll serve your own appetites. You'll be liable to serve other demagogues that come around promising you a better life. But the human heart will serve. This is what Lewis says. He says, When equality is treated not as a medicine or a safety gadget, but as an ideal, 
we begin to breed that stunted and envious sort of mind which hates all superiority. It will kill us if it grows unchecked. The man or woman who cannot conceive of a joyful, loyal obedience on the one hand, nor an unembarrassed and noble acceptance of that obedience on the other, the man who has never wanted to kneel or to bow is a barbarian. He's saying the ultimate reality is a being that's worthy of our worship, a being that's worthy of our loyalty, a being that's worthy of us bowing before him and saying, you're the king and I'm not. I, I'm not sufficient to run my own life, to run my own world. Left to ourselves, we ruin ourselves. And we ruin our communities, we ruin our societies. We need a king who knows how to order us, who's wise and loving. And Jesus in his resurrection uh, is that king, the one who has absolute claim over your life and over the whole world. Secondly, what would it mean? It would mean that you can be forgiven. Right? The, the next most important question, if Jesus is the king, the question is what kind of king is he? Right? Is he the kind of king? Now listen, it may not be good news if when God visited us in the flesh, human beings rebelled against him, arrested him, and murdered him. When that God rose from the dead, that might not be good news for those same human beings who betrayed him and who murdered him and who doubted him. But what does Jesus say when he rises from the dead? When he describes the message that he comes to bring, look what he says, that Christ should suffer, in verse 46, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. That repentance and forgiveness of sins should be offered in the name of Jesus to all nations, not just to Israel, not just to his followers, but that all people everywhere would hear that there is a free offer of what he calls repentance and forgiveness. Friends, if Jesus rose from the dead, it means that not only does death not have reign over Jesus, but that sin and death no longer have to rule over us. The Apostle Paul often described uh, the thing that binds us as human beings, the thing that binds us in slavery and despair, is this chain made up of three links, the law, sin, and death. Right, The law is simply God's commandments. It's what God wants from us, what God tells us makes for a good life. You might think of it simply outlined in the Ten Commandments. So that's the law. Do this and live. Sin is that part of us that can't keep the law. The part of us that at every turn fails God. That part of us when we're told what to do wants more and more to do what we ought not to do. That part of us that, that believes and clings to our own independence from God. And then death. Death being the consequence of our sin. Paul tells us that the wages of sin is death. We think that, we think that sin, be, living as our own kings and queens, living for our own fulfillment, we think that leads to life, but then in the end, the tragedy is that it leads to bondage and to death. And so that those three links make up the chain that keep us bound. And so if Jesus in his resurrection, essentially what he's done is he's broken one of the links of that chain. He's broken the chain link of death forever. 
that in him, when you're joined to him by faith, there is no more death. The wages of sin, what we deserve for our sin, is taken on Jesus on the cross when we place our faith in him. Therefore, we're freed. God's law, his commandments no longer condemn us, but are a way to show us how to live a genuine and full life. So what has to happen for the good news of the resurrection to go from being something that happens outside of us for Jesus to being a reality that causes us to go from death to life is, as he says here, repentance and forgiveness. Repentance is simply going to God. It literally means to turn around. To repent is to go to God and say, God, I have been facing the wrong way in my life for far too long. The way the prophet Jeremiah uh, puts it, he says, God made us to dwell with him face to face. But instead, we've turned our backs to God and not our face. And so to repent is simply to turn face to face to God again. To leave your shame, to leave that, that life that you thought you had to have. And to face God and say, God, I've been left to myself. I've been doing all the wrong things, running away from you. And I want to turn back towards you. I want that death-breaking, sin-canceling death and resurrection of Jesus to bring me from death to life as well. Repentance and forgiveness. Friends, death didn't end Jesus. And sin and death don't have to be the end of your story either. All of us have a tendency to believe that we're going to be defined by our worst mistakes, right? That our darkest memories uh, are going to be what ends up being most true about us. Uh, that our tragedies will come to define us far more than our successes. And the resurrection of Jesus means that that's not the case. Tragedy doesn't have the last word. Death doesn't have the last word. Sin doesn't have the last word. As surely as Jesus walked out of the grave and into new life, you can walk with him through the simple steps of repentance and forgiveness. There's an insert in your bulletin. Um, you can look at it. You can look at it now. You can look at it later. It just has three prompts for you to think about praying to God. Right? We're not going to put a whole lot of pressure on you uh, here to think about this um, or to have to, to, to make some kind of decision on something so important in front of a whole bunch of people. But we would. You know, prayer can be awkward, especially if you're not used to doing it, if it's been a long time since you've talked to God. These three things might just be prompts for you. There's little descriptors of where you might find yourself in the Christian life. And you can use those things to begin to find your own language as you turn to God in prayer. I trust that you'll find that he, as he has been for so many for so long, is willing and ready to hear your prayers and to receive you, whether it's for the first time or for the thousandth time, to him as your child. So it means that you can be forgiven. And then finally, brothers and sisters, if Jesus is risen from the dead, then it means that we are witnesses. We are witnesses to the most profound thing that has ever happened in the world. That's what uh, Jesus says in verse 48. You are my witnesses. Now, the, the, the disciples were eyewitness witnesses. They were witnesses who didn't have to take somebody's word for it, that Jesus rose from the dead. In this story, they touch and they see and they know that he is really risen. And yet, just as surely as their faith rests on eyewitness testimony, so the, the continual testimony of the Christian church is based on their testimony. Right? The Gospels purport to be eyewitness accounts of the resurrection. 
And we are here together in this room because of the people that they told about it. So that if you go back, they witness to others who witness to others who witness to others who witness to others. And if you stretch that all the way out, at some point, somebody got on a boat and came all the way to America. At some point, somebody learned our language to speak it to, to you or to your ancestors. That the gospel goes forward based on witness. Not witness, you know, man, if you've been around church for any length of time, there can be all kinds of weird feelings that come with the word witness. But to witness simply means to say with your life and with your mouth, Jesus is risen. He's risen, he rose back then, and he continues to rise in my life. He continues to bring me, he brought me from death to life. Friends, today is a day where people all over the world uh, gather to celebrate uh, Easter, to celebrate that the tomb is empty, that Christ is risen. But you know what happens on the Monday after Easter? Most people go back uh, to ordinary life. Most people go back to life as it had always been lived before. And you witness through your life to the fact that the tomb is still just as empty on the Monday after Easter as it is on Easter morning. By your life, by your love, by your words, you tell a watching world that the tomb is still empty. You may not think of yourself as an evangelist, right? Somebody who's going to go around telling everybody you know something. But it's in the simple, the simple, selfless, often hidden acts of Christian love that proclaim in quiet but unmistakable ways that the tomb is still empty. You say this when you dare uh, to love a difficult neighbor, but you choose to forgive. You do this when you become a person who repents and apologizes a little more quickly and gets a little less defensive. You do this as you walk back into your work on Monday with a renewed sense of purpose and mission. You do this when you walk and to serve those who you would rather not serve. When you go uh, to care for those who the world finds difficult to care for. You do this as you move towards your spouse or your children or your roommates with forgiveness and love. You do this when you cling on in faith to prayers that seem impossible and unanswered. You say, the tomb is still empty. The tomb is still empty today. Hallelujah. Christ is risen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we live in a world that is so full of bad news that our hearts are just conditioned to it by now. We confess our unbelief. Lord, that sometimes the resurrection does seem, quite honestly, naive, too good to be true, too much like a fairy tale. But Lord, we come to you saying, we believe, help our unbelief. Help that part of us that believes, that part of us that's starting to catch a glimpse of the glory and joy of resurrection, to grow uh, such that its light drives out the darkness of doubt. Lord, whether for the first time or the hundredth time, Lord, help us to follow you out of the tomb, out of the tomb of our own sin, our own unbelief, our own despair, and into the joyful light of resurrection life, forgiveness in a new day. Lord, we thank you for your death, for your resurrection, for breaking the chain that held us. Lord, we pray that you would help us to walk in new life 
with you, our risen Savior. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.